Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. enjoying the book of Acts, and I trust you guys are as well, is because this is our history. This is the history of the church. We're connected to everything that's going on in the book of Acts. Have you thought about that? This is our history. We are connected to this long and godly legacy of faithful Christian witnesses who've passed on the faith, who passed on the faith, who passed on the faith throughout all the centuries, and eventually it makes its way to us. And we're also called uh, to do the same, to be good witnesses for Jesus. That's what uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, and why we're learning so much about being witnesses for Jesus. Um, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be... My witnesses, Jesus said. You're going to be my witnesses to the world so that the world will come to know me, Jesus said. And uh, one of the things that uh, missionaries do is when they go to a a foreign field, maybe kind of like our our missionary Josh Kuhn, he goes to an indigenous tribe in the jungle somewhere. One of the things that he's going to have to learn to do is to contextualize the gospel Right? Try to make the gospel make sense in that particular culture, which can be somewhat difficult. I think a prime example of this would be the, in that book, Peace Child. How many of you have heard of the book, Peace Child? All right, several of you. Um, the missionaries there were trying to reach this indigenous tribe in the jungle, and, and they're sharing the story about Jesus working their way through the you know, the gospel, as in uh, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John gospels. And uh, this jungle, this tribe rejoices when they get to the part where Judas betrays Jesus. They rejoiced over it because in their culture, betrayal was a virtue. It was a good thing. And so the missionaries are like, oh no, what do we do? Well, anyway, they end up finding this great illustration called the peace child, where if there's war between tribes, uh, uh, one, one tribe would offer a peace child to the other tribe, and they would kind of exchange members of the tribe. And Well, that was a great way to contextualize the gospel uh, because God is the one who offered His peace child, right? So they had to help the gospel make sense to this people group. And um, in our rapidly changing, unchurched culture, we're finding a larger and larger gap, I think, between the Christian worldview and the, what this Christian nation right, started out as and, what, and just what it is today. It's just a larger gap we're finding between the Christian worldview and what people really believe and those that we seek to reach. And I think we have to learn to think more like missionaries ourselves on a foreign field who contextualize the gospel to meet the needs of the people where they're at in a way that they'll understand. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't mean we change the message, but the whole the one-size-fits-all gospel approach where I just sit down, you know, the Billy Graham days, I think those are over, and we've got to learn uh, in this boiling pot that America is to learn to contextualize the gospel for people where they're at. Because uh, that's what we're going to learn today in the book of Acts. This is what Paul did as he, as he walks through um, three different cities today. That's kind of our outline for today. Um, and I honestly, I have to give credit to Warren Wearsby for my outline because his outline was so simple and so good I couldn't use it. Um, Thessalonica is the first city we're going to be at where they resist the word. Thessalonica resisting the word. So three cities, three different responses. And uh, Paul takes some different um, witnessing strategies in each city. But um, 
verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them uh, from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Uh, and, but the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things. And when they received a pledge from Jason and the others, uh, they released them. So uh, here we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and uh, they leave Philippi. Luke apparently stays behind at Philippi, but Paul and Silas and Timothy, Timothy they, they move on. They travel down this um, famous Roman road, the Via Ignatia, a uh, prominent Roman road down to Thessalonica. This is called Saloniki today, uh, the second most influential city in Greece. And they do pass by, you'll notice, a couple of cities. Did you wonder why they, they passed by these places? They passed by Amphipolis and they passed by Apollonia. They were significant cities, but it seems it was Paul's strategy, it was Paul's pattern to reach the larger cultural centers in a certain uh, demographic area who in exchange would, uh, after the gospel was planted there, that cultural center would expand and reach out to its own surrounding district, basically. So, and that's exactly what happens. Of the Thessalonians, Paul is going to say that because of their reception of the gospel amidst persecution, they, with a strong faith, became a model church, a model to all of the churches in that area. Basically, there he says, your testimony, you see this in 1 Thessalonians 1, I think it's, I think it's verse 8, but he says, your testimony, your example has echoed forth throughout all Macedonia and Achaia. And that's basically all of Greece as we know it today. So throughout the whole country of Greece, this one church in Thessalonica, their testimony resounded throughout there. And uh, they do end up reaching uh, these two other cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia. Uh, and uh, actually in Amphipolis, they've uncovered five ancient churches there. So remember that Paul is going around He's, he's planting a few seeds in a cultural center, and those seeds grow, and then they reach their own area with the gospel. And he's doing this all over the Roman Empire as God leads him. Okay? And uh, another pattern of Paul we see was that he reached the synagogues first. And Luke actually calls this, in verse 2, Paul's custom. If the city had a synagogue, that's where Paul went First, And this is uh, both theological and practical for Paul because in Romans he says the gospel is to the Jew first and then also to the Greek because everything about the gospel is Jewish, right? I mean, it's a Jewish Messiah, it's a Jewish Savior, Jewish scriptures, Jewish promises, Jewish covenants. And so that's why he just, he just loves his Jewish brethren. We read about that in Romans. And as a rabbi... Uh, this is, and this is very strategic of Paul, but as a rabbi, he'd be welcome to speak in the synagogues. He's a visiting rabbi. They'd say, hey, brother, from out of town, come up and share a message with us from God's word. And he'd say, okay, you might not like it, but <laughs> here it is. And he'd present the gospel, the good news that their Messiah had come. And, uh, you know, he's not going to be welcome to come preach in the synagogues if he goes out into the Agora, the marketplace, first and preaches. So he's, it's very strategic of Paul to do this. 
But there's another reason he goes to the Jew first, and it's because they have the same biblical worldview. I mean, doesn't that just make sense? Uh, wouldn't it just be easier to speak to someone who has the same worldview as you, right? They're, these people are grounded in the Old Testament. They're expecting a Jewish Messiah to come. And so Paul's reasoning with them from uh, their worldview. They're on the same page. Uh, it's, very, it's very practical, very ideal for him to do this. Uh, so he's probably going through the Old Testament scriptures. That's really all he has, uh, like Isaiah 53, explaining Jesus had to suffer and die for sins and be raised to life again. And again, that's a lot easier uh, than trying to explain a Jewish Messiah to a Gentile people who don't have the same hope. It's a lot easier to uh, go to the Jews first. But uh, today, it's, it's also a lot easier to explain the gospel to someone isn't it? Who, actually, who has an understanding or at least some sort of sense that God's Word is special. right? Have you ever tried to witness to someone who has zero trust in God's Word or they just think it's a book written by men? They're a lot more difficult to witness to, right? And you can share the gospel with them all you want, like with one of these kids I did down in South America, and I get to the end of the gospel presentation and he says, well, I still think there's some errors in the Bible, so I can't trust basically anything. Everything I had said all the prophecies I just talked about being fulfilled, he basically just wrote them off as nothing because he had no foundation that this was God's Word. And uh, so we, I think, as, as, as Christians, as witnesses, we want to be winsome witnesses like we've been discussing. Uh, number one, we're going to want to uh, reason from the Scriptures. I think ideally we want to help people understand the Gospel from Scripture. Okay? Now, we want to reason, we want to explain, we want to prove, we want to proclaim the truth and the gospel from Scripture because God's Word is powerful. Hebrews 4.12, we could come up with a dozen verses here for how God's Word doesn't return void. God's Word is powerful. Um, it's, the, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm always going to try to use the Word of God to convince people of their need for Jesus, right? But not everybody out there in our society, not all of your friends, not all of your coworkers are going to want to hear what your word has to say. They're not going to want to hear it. In fact, as soon as you bust it out, they might be done with you, right? And so that's what we're getting at in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, as Paul works his way to Athens, it's going to be a different audience. He's not going to be in the scriptures necessarily. Everything he says is biblical. Everything he says is scriptural. But he's also going to take a different approach with the Gentiles in Athens than he does with the Jews in the synagogues. It's interesting. But in the case at Thessalonica, Thessalonica, some were persuaded, some joined Paul and Silas, but some became resistant and some became hostile. Um, again, this is a pattern. Paul goes somewhere, he preaches, a remnant gets saved, but and there's also opposition with it. Um, some Jews become jealous, it says, and along with some wicked men, um, uh, they, they form a mob, and they basically set the city of Thessalonica in an uproar, and then they, they try to pin it on the Christians as some sort of revolution taking place here, right? Sedition against Caesar, against Rome. And it kind of reminds me of what Emperor Nero did. He set the city of Rome on fire in AD 64, and then he pinned it on the Christians. He blamed the Christians for it. Uh, it's, it's the same thing. Luke is, again, he's, he's, he's showing us this same thing in city after city. How there's just this, the gospel's preached and it keeps colliding with social and political and economic concerns. Right? Actually, a lot of people are getting upset when the gospel starts to affect their pocket books, kind of like the slave girl's masters last week, kind of like in a couple of chapters in, in Ephesus, um, they say, we're, we're, we're going to lose all our money on the idols. If everyone believes in Jesus, we can't make idols, make money off these idols that we're making anymore. And so, again, Luke is showing us how the gospel is colliding with the worldviews, the social, the political, and the economic concerns in each, each of these cities. And, and uh, let's face it, guys. The gospel changes how we relate to everything, doesn't it? To all of those things. The gospel changes how we relate to Caesar. It doesn't mean we don't 
respect Caesar doesn't mean we don't pay taxes, but a lot of these Christians are going to die because they won't burn incense to Caesar anymore uh, in the early church. A lot of times we think of faith as only a private and spiritual and personal matter. And it's not that it isn't, but our faith is more than personal, isn't it? It has to get beyond that. It, if the gospel is true, it, Luke, and Luke is showing us this, if we understand the gospel, it's going to change our worldview, and it's going to start to collide with every aspect of our life, with social, political, and economic concerns, because the gospel changes our priorities, it changes our loyalties, it transforms our lives, it transforms our relationships, it changes our way of doing business, doesn't the gospel change your way of handling money? Right? It's changed the way you, re, you, you, you vote. It changes your way of relating to Caesar. And there's a quote I've been saving uh, since March, actually, uh, for a moment like this. Because this is what Luke's showing us. But Joel Green, he's a scholar. He wrote a commentary on Luke. And in his uh, introduction to Luke, he writes this. He says, salvation is neither ethereal. And I'm basically, he's, he's saying it's not just spiritual and it's not just future, right? Like I'll be saved in the future. He's saying it embraces, our salvation is, is now. It embraces life in the present. Restoring the integrity of human life, right? Like human dignity. Uh, revitalizing human communities. Setting the cosmos in order and commissioning the community of God's people to put God's grace into practice among themselves and then towards ever-widening circles of others. He says the third evangelist, Luke, knows nothing of such dichotomies as those sometimes drawn between the social and the spiritual or the individual and the communal. Salvation embraces the totality of embodied life, including social, economic, and political concerns. This is a theme that Luke is demonstrating throughout Luke, the book of Luke, and the book of Acts. All of these different concerns and the way it affects our lives. And uh, in other words, I could sum that up by saying Jesus changes everything. Or at least he should. It changes our worldview. Uh, and uh, it's a good thing that Jesus does that. Because this is a hurting world that needs Christians who, who apply Scripture to every aspect of their lives. But anyway, let's move on. Unable to lay hands on the missionaries, they drag some of the believers. And Jason, who apparently opened his home to them, they drag them before the city authorities and demand what was basically a good behavior bond to let them go. And uh, Paul moves on, but he'll continue correspondence uh, through, the, through the mail, through letters. And then, he, uh, and then we move on to Berea, and we're going to contrast basically this synagogue community at Thessalonica with Berea's synagogue community. And this is kind of funny. This is where we get our name, right? Uh, Berea in the book of Acts, uh, the Berean church. So, Berea receiving the word. Uh, verse 10, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And there were many of them who believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the Word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Okay, so, they, so here they, they travel to Berea. This is about 45 miles um, southwest of Thessalonica, inland. If you were to uh, look for it on a map today, if you were to go to Google Earth, you'd find it under Varia with a V. But um, also, if you were to visit today, uh, you would find this kind of a neat, colorful mosaic uh, and, and, and just kind of a neat, I don't know, structure there where they think that the Apostle Paul actually 
preached, and you can find some of Berea's old city walls there too. But um, it uh, it's kind of neat. It depicts Paul um, with the scriptures, right, preaching to the Bereans who have an open copy of the scriptures themselves. So he's preaching the word, and they're seeing in the book in their word and their copy of the scriptures whether what Paul says is true, and that's why. Uh, Luke calls them noble-minded. Uh, this is the Greek word eugenes. I just figured out where my grandpa's name Eugene comes from. It comes from this Greek word that means noble-minded. But um, noble-minded because when Paul came and he shared the gospel, they didn't just accept his words blindly. And they didn't, out of their own presuppositions, just reject what he had to say. Like, that's not the way... We thought the Messiah was going to come. We know he's going to come, you know, literally, physically to Jerusalem. And, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't write him off. They're not, they don't accept him blindly. They don't write him off because of their presuppositions. They say, show us from Scripture. Show us from Scripture. Let's see what God's Word has to say about this. And it says they gave themselves to careful daily study of the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. They cross-examined. There's a forensic term here. They cross-examined his words from Scripture. And honestly, guys, that's your job when it comes to whatever I say up here. Um, you're Bereans too. You're named after a Jewish synagogue in the middle of Greece. Okay, <laughs> um, Your job is to cross-examine what I say with what God's Word says. And uh, to be honest with you, that's how I ended up in this position is because I was raised Catholic and I started in uh, about uh, right after high school, I started attending a Protestant church, a Berean church, and uh, an evangelical church. But um, at that time, just a seeker, I had no idea who was right. Okay, I'm going to this church where this guy's wearing a big fancy white hat on his head and a robe, and he's saying one thing, and I'm going to the street, to a church down the street uh, the next week, and this, this preacher's wearing slacks, you know, and I'm like, who, who in the world's right? The guy in the robe or the guy in the slacks? And guess what I had to do in order to figure out, because I'm not going to rest my eternal destiny on what a guy says, right? Especially when they have different opinions, Guess what I had to do? I had to get into the Word of God. And I started to just dive into the Word of God and read through the Word of God because I'm not, I don't know about you, I don't want you to bank your eternity on what I say. I want you to bank your eternity on the Word of God and what it says. It's so important, so critical for us to get into the Word of God ourselves. And so I would challenge you to pick up the Word of God and read through it uh, daily. Careful study of the Scriptures. And I say that because God wants all of us to be people of his word, not just the pastor, not just the guy in the pulpit. We want to open his word together. We want to study it together. In fact, the Berean Fellowship of Churches, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we got, it got started in about 1932 in North Platte, Nebraska, just down the road. By the way, we are a fellowship, not a denomination. Uh, we're a fellowship of like-minded churches that began in North Platte with 13 people. And who were just, they were tired of going to church and not having the Bible opened before them and preached out of. Because there's a lot of churches, even in Shadron today, where you can go and they won't open the Bible. And we won't preach from the Bible. And so this is kind of one of the earliest pictures. They called themselves the Church of the Open Bible. I thought that was a good name. But anyway, they decided to change it in 1935 to the Berean Church. And now there's 57 Berean churches throughout the United States from California to Kentucky, and there's a, there's a lot of church planning going on in India. But uh, winsome witnesses, there's another principle here I want to take for us, in that winsome witnesses invest in honest seekers. You want to really invest in people who have an honest and open interest in learning what God's Word has to say about truth and salvation. And I'll be honest with you, that is more rare these days uh, than ever, probably. Like for us, as we know it in our culture, 
Um, if you have someone, a coworker, or whatever, you're witnessing and they want to know what the Bible has to say, man, jump on that. <laughs> you know, Meet with that person. Help them understand. Make it a priority like Paul. Help them understand God's, God's Word and meet with them. Um, take advantage of that opportunity. But eventually the Jews from Thessalonica come to persecute Paul in Berea. And so he goes alone into Athens. And Athens, uh, so we've been to... Uh, one city, Thessalonica, resisting the word. We've been to Berea, receiving the word. And now we're at Athens, ridiculing the word because the gospel's foolishness to the Greeks, right? Um, they ridicule Paul. Verse 16 says, uh, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing this city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers uh, were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him before the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. This was their, uh, basically this was their Facebook news feed, so, uh, or their YouTube. Uh, they would actually do it in person though. But uh, I've got to say, uh, to be honest, uh, I've been a little antsy to get to Athens in the book of Acts because this is just such a high point in, in the whole book. And there's so much that we can learn from it. When I think of Athens, I think of University City. People have called it University City. This is, this is the philosophical, intellectual capital of the Greek-Roman world, the Greco-Roman world. It's the cradle of democracy. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's the cradle of philosophy. It's home to Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, all of these famous philosophers, Epicurus. And uh, granted, the glory of Athens was fading by the time that Paul reached it because they'd been conquered by Rome. Uh, I, you know, their, their, their glory has been fading for a few centuries now. The population is dwindling to somewhere around 30,000, uh, some historians suggest, but it was still very influential. I mean, this is Athens. Uh, it, the art, the literature, the oratory of Athens from the 4th and 5th centuries B.C. still remains unsurpassed. And uh, we can't imagine a more sophisticated setting for the gospel to be preached, not even Rome. In Athens, people would sit around and just spend their time preoccupied with the latest philosophical ideas, the latest fads. And uh, so this is neat. If we were to visit Athens today, have any of you visited Athens, by the way? No? Okay, yes. Is it awesome? It's <laughs> a lot of ruins. Yeah, see, this, if we were to go there, what do people go there today to do? They go to sightsee. They go to look at all these big fancy structures and all of the art. Well, guess what we're gawking at, mostly? Temples and idols that are left over from this period. And um, a lot of the architecture there, you're looking at temples that were built to false gods. And uh, the museums are full of, full of idols and just statues of false gods. But unlike us, Paul wasn't sightseeing. He was soul-searching. Look at him. His, his spirit on the inside was vexed by the overwhelming idolatry that this city was living. And they said there were something around 30,000 idols in Athens at the time. And, and the word for provoked, you see that in verse 16, how Paul was provoked. That's where we get our word for paroxysm. It's a, it's a surge of emotional anger or frustration. Paul's looking around at all these idols and he's, he has a surge of emotion on the inside. He's angry at all of this. 
He's angry at the idols. He's upset. He's irritated on the inside because it's everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's an idol. There's a niche. There's a carving. There's a statue. There's, there's a temple. They're surrounded by it. They're drowning in idolatry. And it's kind of probably how we would feel if we were to go to India today. And they just have countless gods, right? Just innumerable amount of gods. When I was in South America, everywhere you went, there was a statue to Mary. I mean, it was, whether it was made by a, in a, it was in a cathedral or made by a church or whether it was handmade by some guy that lives in a cardboard hut. I mean, there was a statue of Mary or a niche to Mary on the sidewalk, in the ditch, everywhere you go. Mary, Mary, Mary. It's like you think that Mary's the mediator between God and man. And it just, it vexed to me. After a while, I kind of got used to it. But when I first arrived there, I'm like, holy cow, there's more statues to Mary than Jesus. And so... Um, that, even that, was nothing compared to Athens. Today, people are gawking at temples and idols in the museums. If you go there, they're still left over from this period. And of ancient Athens, there was one Roman official who said, uh, serving under Nero, he said, truly our neighborhood is so well stocked with deities at hand that you'll easier meet with a god than a man. <laughs> that kind of puts it in perspective. And just like Socrates, I hope you're familiar with Socrates, uh, Paul is cast in a similar light as Socrates in this chapter, I think, intentionally. Just like Socrates, he would go into the Agora, uh, the, the marketplace. This was the hub of the city. This was, you know, the Wall Street. This was where you got your produce. This is where you got your ideas. Everything was sold here. It was the center of each, of each city, the Agora. And... Uh, the marketplace for everything, including ideas. And uh, Paul's in here, he's discussing the gospel with anyone present, and it's here he runs into these two main schools of thought, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans were followers of Epicurus, uh, who lived about 300 uh, B.C., and he could be the Epicureans could be described as agnostic secularists. Agnostic meaning, uh, gnostic come, agnostic comes from the word, uh, basically gnostic means knowing, but you put an A in front of it and it negates that word, so it's, you can't know. You can't know if there's a God or not. You guys all have agnostics in your life, right? I need friends and coworkers. Well, like, you can't really know if there's a God or not. Don't really know if he's involved. He might have started the world spinning, but he's not involved in human affairs. So... Um, that's kind of the Epicurean mindset and worldview. They were indifferent. Even though this place is surrounded by gods, or sort of like filled with false gods, uh, they're indifferent to them. They say, like, basically, if the gods existed, they're far too removed from being involved in the affairs of man. And so they emphasized uh, the material, and they, the material, right, kind of like evolution today. Uh, no spiritual, no metaphysical, just material. That's all that exists. And um, they tried to live a balanced life free from pain and suffering. So they weren't quite hedonistic, uh, but they did seek pleasure. They called pleasure good. And they were particularly disinterested in the idea of a God judging them one day. Diogenes summed it up well with this. He said, nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death Good, which is pleasure, can be attained. Evil, pain, can be endured. That was their mindset. And then you've got the more popular uh, worldview of the Stoics, the followers of Zeno. Uh, same time periods that he lived in. Uh, they were almost, that one was, Zeno was actually born a year later. But uh, their name came from this building called the Stoa, where he would teach. And these are basically the New Agers of their day who believed all matter was God. You know, it's kind of pantheism. Pantheism means God is everything. You're God. The chair you sit on is God. The tree outside is God. Everything's just kind of divine. Every, but they also believed that humans in particular had a divine spark. So there's something special about humans. And they all come from a single point of origin. So they were kind of on to something there. But uh, 
they, they needed corrected. But they were, they were more fatalistic. They believed we should just accept our lot, uh, the lot of our suffering and pain, and we should refuse to show any emotion. Um, it was um, obviously the more popular philosophy, and so Paul speaks to their worldview most in his sermon that we're about to read. And uh, anyway, when these two big schools of philosophy hear Paul preaching and teaching, they say, who is this idle babbler? Idle babbler, that word babbler in the Greek literally means seed picker. Who is this seed picker? Um, the idea was they were comparing him to a bird that would go around and he would just kind of pick seeds from this philosophy, that philosophy. See, he, they, did, they were calling his worldview inconsistent and incoherent. He's a seed picker. And you see these kind of people all over YouTube, right, making their videos and stuff. Like that, they just kind of pick from this, I'll pick from that, pick from this view, that view, and it's just kind of a conglomeration. And uh, that's what they were calling Paul. And so... That'll come up later, but um, our goal as Christians should not to, to be not to be seed pickers. We want to have a consistently biblical worldview in all matters of life that we were just talking about. But anyway, these philosophers, they want to know more what Paul has to say, and so they invite him to speak at the Areopagus, and this is the 30-member uh, governing body that was responsible for um, life in Athens, even what gods were accepted and what gods weren't. And uh, Luke's account is very reminiscent of Socrates, who was sentenced to death by this group, the Areopagus, for introducing strange deities. It's the same word they used of Socrates. Socrates was put to death a few centuries before this, for introducing strange deities. Now they're saying the same thing of Paul, and he's standing before the same body, same governing body. So Luke, I think depicting him in the same light, helps us appreciate what Paul's really doing here. He's kind of got his life on the line. Uh, he's very brave. So um, he's, Paul and God the gospel are confronting this elite religious, cultural, and legal institution of Athens, showing that the gospel is a message worthy of attention by the society's most prestigious institutions. Don't ever be afraid to share the gospel on a university campus or to a professor, basically. Um, let's continue. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man... Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live, he's quoting a poet here, for in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also His children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead." Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, which none of the Greeks believed this, okay, there was no resurrection, he said, some began to sneer and others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. They're kind of curious. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite 
and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So I could do a short sermon series on Paul's witness in Athens, but I just want to point out a few things he did to be a winsome witness in this polytheistic context. Number one, he turns his righteous anger into compassion. He turns his anger into compassion. Paul, guys, you have to remember, Paul is like you and me. He's looking around at the pagan culture of Athens like we're looking around at our country and our world today. And doesn't it make you angry at times with what's going on? It made Paul angry. He was vexed, remember? But he, it didn't come out, did it? He turned his anger into compassion to reach these people. He's jealous for God and for lost souls, and yet he, he doesn't let that impede his witness. He channels it into compassion. And secondly, he respectfully gains his audience in verse 22. He doesn't start out with, you pagans, right, and you know, fire and brimstone on you. He says, men of Athens, I observe you're very religious in all respects. Okay? Uh, it's a very respectful, gentle greeting. He's actually gaining an audience this way. He wouldn't have the audience uh, he would have had if he would have went into it rude. So he gains an audience respectfully. He finds a cultural springboard, something that they can relate to and kind of meets a need in their community. And it is, it's this altar to an unknown God. Now they had gods everywhere, but they also had an altar to an unknown God in case they upset that God. This was their insurance altar, right, in case they missed a God. They didn't want to get smited by him. But um, this, is, this becomes Paul's springboard and his defense. Remember, this is incredible. Remember Socrates was killed for introducing foreign gods into Athens. But since they've concluded that they might not know every god out there themselves, they've concluded this. They have no real reason to indict him because he's just saying, look, I'm already, I'm just... I'm just telling you about the God you don't know yet. So he's got his defense and he's got their attention. He's speaking their language. And then, number four, he contextualizes the gospel. He contextualizes the gospel. This is probably the main point of the whole sermon today. If we're going to be winsome witnesses, he's presenting Jewish monotheistic concepts into a Gentile polytheistic culture. They could probably care less what his Bible says. I don't want to sound like I'm demeaning the Bible. I'm saying they don't care. Just like some of the people in our culture today, they could care less. And as soon as you bring it up, they'll call you a Bible thumper and write you off. So here's what Paul does. In verses 24 through 29, Paul bridges the gap between his biblical worldview and theirs by actually quoting their God's and their philosophers, and their poets. And uh, in particular, he's confronting the Stoics because that's the most popular philosophy. Everything he says is very biblical. A lot of it comes right out of the book of Genesis. But he's actually not quoting the Bible. He's contextualizing the gospel for the Athenian, making it understandable and relatable. One commentator said he seems to actually go out of his way to find common ground to build a bridge between their philosophers and poets and what what he's preaching. It's it's really neat. Paul somewhat affirms their thinking, like the Stoics, that men do have a common point of origin. Where's that at? He says, from one man. Who's he talking about? Adam. And as creations of God, he also says that we're his children. Now, then he was quoting a, a philosopher called Aratus of Cilicia, well, Paul's from Cilicia. He's familiar with this guy. And um, he was a 3rd century B.C. poet. But he said that of Zeus, or a philosopher poet, but he, he said of Zeus that we are his offspring. So Paul's just quoting them. He understands like they have something going for him here, but they just need a little bit of correction. It's not Zeus, right? It's, it's Yahweh. It's Yeshua. But he's saying in, all, in a sense... There is a sense in which all humans are God's offspring because we're created in His image. Uh, We came from Him and we're dependent on... So Greeks, they would actually make God in their image, right? And you see that. by All their gods look like men and they all have men's weaknesses and strengths. 
But what Paul's saying is, no, we're made in God's image. We don't make God in our image. We make, uh, we're made in His image, and we're actually dependent upon Him, so it doesn't make any sense to think that God's made or confined to your temples or your stone or your gold or your silver statues, whatever it is. So we're made in God's image, and therefore we are accountable to Him uh, to, to make God God's in, in our image out of stone is just illogical. Remember, this is the intellectual capital of the world. He just said, you, you're just, this is illogical. You believe that we're God's children, and yet you're making God in your own image. You see, he's, like, he's reasoning with them. In contrast to the Epicurean's God, who's not involved at all in our lives, Paul says he is sovereign over our lives. In fact, he's determined the boundary of your habitation. He's the reason you were born in Shadron, Nebraska. He, that's how, he's saying that's how sovereign God is. And then in contrast to Stoics, the Stoicism, the fatalism of Stoicism, whatever, and, and the impersonal, pantheistic God that kind of treats God like a force rather than a person, Paul says God wants us to seek Him. So he's not fatalistic. He's saying, no, you have a responsibility to seek God and to trust in God. He's not far from any of us. And isn't that true? Because God is omnipresent. I mean, do you see how he's, he's relating to them? He's building bridges, but he's also correcting them. It's so just, it's fantastic what he's doing here. Um, how about remembering this when it comes to your New Ager friends? There's some New Agers, right, in Nebraska, in the Nebraska. We know that. So how about, right, they, they believe, right, that, in, that, we, that man has a divine spark, right? They try to seek God within, they believe God's everywhere. Well, how far away from God's omnipresence is that? How about if we trust in Christ, you can have that divine nature. You know, you see how, how close it is, but it's still off. And that's what Paul's doing. He's correcting them. So you see the difference in his pro- approach between the Gentiles and then the Jews in the synagogue. He's relating to this crowd respectfully and contextually, but also he's also confronting and correcting at the same time. And he's showing Christianity is superior even to the Stoics and that it answers all of your, your deepest desires and questions. And he's showing them the compromises that they are making despite their commitment to intellectualism. Um, they are the real seed pickers. <laughs> Not Paul. They're seed pickers. They're living in ignorance. They're picking and choosing. Their worldview is not consistent. He's just shown them that. And this sermon sort of becomes a model for us presenting the gospel in our unchurched culture today, especially, especially I think, again, with individuals who could care less about what the Bible says. We need to seek points of contact with them and um, try to build gospel bridges that exist within their worldview Already, And that's going to take some time to think through and pray through, I know. But um, let's have an awareness of where our culture is at, what, the, what they're listening to, who they're listening to, what are the popular songs out there, what's the literature, what are the books, and use it to speak to them. Use it to, to build a, a gospel bridge. And Paul wins souls that way. He wins an Areopagite this way. It's interesting. And then the final thing he does is he calls for a decision. He gets to the point. He says, he, calls, he says that God calls all men everywhere to repent and return to God who created them. Failure to respond to God in view of the witness, both of creation and the resurrection of the Son of God, would prove disastrous in the coming day of judgment. And that was something that, that totally contrasted their worldview. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a coming judgment. And Paul's saying, look, God has furnished proof through creation and through His Son who was raised from the dead. And we must accept the good news of Jesus Christ to be saved. It's a personal, individual response to the gospel. All of us must repent to change our mind about who God is, what He's done for us, to trust in Him. Okay? And that's something Luke is emphasizing as well. Personal, individual responses to the gospel. In summary, um, I just want to point out how everywhere Paul goes, he's not seed picking, he's seed 
planting. He's planting seeds, and a few of them take root, and those seeds are going to bear more seeds, and they're going to be more seeds. And in this way, not only Athens, not only Thessalonica, not only Berea, but the whole Roman Empire is going to be filled with Christianity. This little humble movement is going to turn into something big. It's a mustard seed. Christianity's humble beginnings, eventually, they're going to meet in the Hagia Sophia, right? The largest interior space in the world at the time. I mean, this, it just, they go from living in caves to meeting. I mean, Christianity becomes the foundation for the entire empire. And it becomes legalized just in three centuries later with Constantine. Many of these temples, like the ancient temple to Athena, next to the the Stoa there, the Temple of Hephaestus, in in the Agora. These are going to be converted into churches. You would never guess that. Now Paul's only one of few believers, right? The the reason this building is, is still intact and still standing is because it was converted into a church. It was, it was protected that way because normally like if something got old like this, they'd just tear it down and use it to build something new. But the reason that building's still standing is because Paul preached the gospel there that day. I believe that. We need to remember this because we look around and what do we feel like? What do we feel like in here today? Do you feel ignored? Do you feel criticized? Do you feel like a remnant Like, why isn't there more of us? That's how I feel. I look into our culture and I'm angry. And I think, why in the world? I'm angry at our culture. I'm angry that more people don't come to church. (laughs) Come on, think about eternity. And then I'm encouraged by this chapter because I look at it and I think, just a few seeds can turn into a lot. God can reap a harvest. Our culture, it's rapidly changing. America, it's a boiling pot of cultures and ideas. And I think now is the time for us to learn, to contextualize the gospel, to be like missionaries who can do that, make it relatable, make it desirable. Find the flaws in the worldviews out there. It's not hard. Evolution's shot full of holes fossil record, molecular, biology, genetics. We do come from one origin. Find the flaws and speak to it. Speak to it. And turn this world upside down. One seed at a time. Amen.